Simple Beep, Episode 18, Icon Mania. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this episode, we're going to go into the pixel-perfect world of classic Mac icons. But before we get to that, we have some extremely relevant follow-up. Going back a few episodes ago when we did our history of iTunes, one of the things that, Brian, you were pretty well focused on was the iTunes icon. And since we last had an episode, there's been a new version of iTunes, just iTunes 12.2, not a major version number release, but a major release with the addition of the Apple Music features. But that's not what we're here to talk about. (laughs) We're here to talk about the new icon. Yes, uh, it's so it's still a uh, two barred eighth notes within a circle. Previously, those eighth notes were white against a kind of red ish background uh, with a white stroke around it. And now it's kind of the reverse with a little bit extra flair. There's a big white circle with a, a semi rainbow of colors, uh, both on the eighth notes and the outline. Um, I actually, we've, we've tweeted about this when it came out and uh, retweeted from the show account. And one person saw it and said, it's not a full rainbow, Brian. <laughs> they told me, <laughs> and I said, like, there's no green. Um, and so on second glance, I would say it's more like the colors of an oil spill, maybe, like <laughs> on a parking lot. You know, it's, it's certainly different. It's a whole lot of color. It's got a light blue, a dark blue, and the red tones mixed in. And of course, the iOS icon uh, was changed to match, but uh, I care less about that than I do about the ever ongoing saga of the iTunes app icon. Well, and they also made one other slight change that could easily be overshadowed by the major color palette change, which was the thing that bugged me about the iTunes 12.0 icon was that I thought that the round part of the music notes just didn't look right. There was something off about it, like they were too squat or too square, and they tweaked it a little bit on the new icon. They are still sort of round rectangles rather than ovals, but they've been skewed so that the round rectangles are at the same angle as the bar across the eighth notes, and it looks a lot better. Yeah. So Apple is still paying attention very close attention to detail in their app icons, even as they are doing flat design with them. There's there's always something still to be tweaked. Yeah. Uh, sweat in the pixels, as I think some of the people we're about to talk about would have put it. Absolutely. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of icons on the Mac. And of course, the mere existence of icons was one of the major features of the original Mac and the graphical user interface as a whole. But the fact that you manipulated your files and programs and folders using these icons that needed to be easy to see, representative, that was a big step forward. And a lot of these icons were direct metaphors for uh, things on your real-world desktop, things like folders and files, uh, trash can. The, uh, later, there is actually an icon for the desktop itself. And uh, I think this was a big uh, 
assistance into helping people use the computer and, and you know, being able to visualize what files were and how they could be organized. And uh, so the, the visual side of things that icons brought to computing were probably a big part of what made computers uh, accessible to the mainstream and not just, you know, nerds. At the same time, though, it had to be an extremely high level of abstraction. You mentioned the sort of overall desktop metaphor. And of course, what is what do we still call the desktop today? Well, it's just it's just the the blankness of the rectangle of the screen that is the the backdrop that you can throw icons onto. That is your desktop, that is your workspace, and that's just so abstract. It doesn't look like a desk. There was no wood paneling. Not even in the glorious days of skeuomorphism did macOS come with something that looked like an actual desktop finish, like a wood grain or a shiny plastic. I guess the dock took on a little bit of that imagery. But you know, it, it's at a level of abstraction. And going back to System 1, the major limiting feature, which was actually one of the criticisms of the original Mac, was that it was black and white only. Yeah, the icons had to fit into a 32 by 32 pixel grid, and they were basically one-bit icons. Either each pixel in that grid was black or it was white. And uh, some icon artists, including the, the prototypical icon artist Susan Kerr, could use some patterns like a checkerboard of on and off pixels to make a gray, but you were really limited to black and white, which, like Ed said, required you to keep things at an abstract level and not try to accomplish the level of detail that we're certainly used to today. Right. So with this extremely limited palette, very limited canvas, you know, one kilobit of information, literally, in there, in two dimensions... That was the basis for forming the entire visual metaphor of the system. So all of the icons that we're used to seeing in some form or another today, such as folders, app icons, and file icons, the drives that you interacted with, both floppy drives, hard drives, later optical drives, and then later not optical drives. <laughs> um, one that was, of course, new to the Mac was the trash can. And then even uh, icons to represent your cursor. We, we all know the pointer. It's been a black arrow pointing up into the left on Macs, a white arrow on Windows. Uh, similarly, when the computer was thinking, the cursor would change. On the Mac, it was a wristwatch. On Windows, it was an hourglass. All of these metaphors, uh, again, they were they're abstract concepts. Uh, when the computer was waiting, you were looking at how much time had passed. Uh, you were pointing, the cursor was a pointer. Uh, and so you, you were actually pointing to the thing you were going to click on. Yeah. And you mentioned that these also qualify as icons. You know, I, I th think for a long time, I thought of icons and cursors as very different. Perhaps this was my, uh, the way that I learned things in ResEdit, where you had totally different resource types for cursors and for icons, even though the small icons, which were 16 by 16, were the same size and used basically the same editor as 
the cursors. And with the cursors, you got that extra uh, piece of information to say which was the one pixel that mattered. The, the actual clicking point. Yeah, I actually agree with you completely. Uh, again, similarly, my experience with uh, getting into icons as uh, resource files came through ResEdit where icons were separate from cursors. And it wasn't until I started thinking about, um, <laughs> for me, it was actually KidPix, the program KidPix. But uh, before that, it was Mac Paint where you would have a tool palette uh, on the side of the screen where each tool that you would use to draw would be represented by a small 16 by 16 icon, you know, your paint bucket, uh, pencil eraser, and all the tools that we're familiar with in modern day equivalents like Photoshop or sketch. And, uh, but usually you would select a tool from the palette and your cursor would turn into that icon that you chose. Almost like you were picking up the tool. Yeah. And that's when they, they all kind of started to meld for me as, uh, the visual icons, the visual metaphors. Yeah, I think that that metaphor does break down again for us. You said we're used to having still that palette of tools. Like if I open up Photoshop today, I'm going to see a lot of tools that look almost exactly like they did in original Mac Paint, some of them, you know, the basic tools. But I I keep that tool palette open, but only sort of to just give me a vague reminder of <laughs> where I am, because if I'm using Photoshop, I'm switching tools with the key commands, which in Photoshop, you don't even need, a, you know, no modifier key. You just V for the cursor and G for the bucket. And, you know, I, I know those things by heart. And you think that it's just like, oh, the cursor changed. Like it, it could be sitting in the middle of your, of your work and just boom, the cursor changed instead of that visual tactile thing of I'm going over to the the toolbox and actually swapping out one for the other. And those were the kinds of things that the original icons had to convey. I mean, file folders, the only reason that we have folders on graphical user interfaces is because it's something that people can understand is a collection of files where if you're in a command line interface, you call them directories. And why is it a directory? Because the way that that is made apparent to you is it prints out a list. Well, that's like a directory. That, you know, It's like looking something up in a list. Whereas if you're trying to think of things in the visual sense, well, a list is not very pretty to represent. What if all of our folder icons instead just looked like a list? It would be it would be a little bit hard to tell what they were trying to indicate. I mentioned uh, her by name briefly, but we should give full credit to Susan Kerr, who was uh, one of the original members of the Macintosh team and really responsible for a lot of the icons and other visual metaphors that we're not only used to today on Apple platforms, but really some broader uh, visual metaphors across all of computers. And lots of things that we've mentioned, like the tools in Mac Paint that are now prevalent in Photoshop or uh, cursors or trash cans or even things uh, Ed's put here in our show notes. Uh, the original Mac control panel only used icons. There were no text labels for what things you're modifying, like system volume or uh, the the rate of um, like key repeat on if you hold down a key on the keyboard. All of these things were accomplished through icons. And so for volume, 
it's the thing we're used to today with a, a speaker cone and sound waves coming out of it. We know that icon pretty well, I'd say, on our show, <laughs> given that it's our our cover art. Or are things like in um, Key Repeat, uh, there's a number scale and it goes from a tortoise on one side to a hare on the other, which is a way to say slow to fast without having to actually use those English words. Right. And there are some numbers there that give you a, a scale if you're thinking of it in those terms. But again, no words. The only thing that really involves any sort of actual thinking about a concept in a non-graphical sense in there is setting the date and time. And that's it. But again, just numbers. And yeah, looking at... So Susan Kerr has a great portfolio where she shows off um, all of her work across several decades and uh, some of that includes these original one-bit icons. And the simplicity and the, the room to build things is really there from the very beginning. Like with document icons, what what is a document icon? It's just a rectangle with the corner, quote, folded over, right? But even the sense that you look at that and you say that's a rectangle with the corner folded over instead of a rectangle with a triangle is, you know, that's the testament to just how powerful that imagery was to begin with. But then giving that as a blank template gave so many other developers to say, okay, well, you have a program and it makes documents. So this is your basic outline. And then you can try to fit in some additional artwork to the extent that you've got room to make it obvious what is contained within that file or that it goes with your program. And Susan Kerr didn't just stop at the original Mac OS. Uh, if you're on the other dominant platform of that era, early Windows, you probably recognize her work from the Solitaire application. She designed the cards for Windows Solitaire. Uh, if you were using Facebook, uh, like towards the end of the time when it was uh, only for college students, you might remember the little dollar gifts that you could buy and stick on your friend's walls. Uh, she designed the initial run of all of those from like little disco balls to puppies to presents. Um, so she's, she's continued to do work. And, uh, you know, the original Mac was small, constrained black and white icons. Windows Solitaire were, you know, those cards were bigger than 32 by 32 pixels and they had a couple more colors. And these Facebook gifts were, you know, they had room to be more meticulously designed and I think the full color palette of uh, like a GIF or whatever resource it was. But she's maintained a pretty uh, unique simplicity throughout all of it. She makes the most of whatever her canvas is. Yeah, and she's still an active graphic designer today. And I think... We'll get into this a little bit later, but I think she really falls on the side of graphic designer as opposed to, say, fine art. And maybe today we'll see that icons are more like fine art than they are like uh, the constrained graphic design. You know, she's she's also done things like uh, logo work where you are, even if you have the ability to go beyond basic pixels to have vector art, to have colors, to add all of that extra richness, you're still trying to work within constraints to be as simple as possible. And that's what she really excels at. 
And it's great that she's still active in her work and still active in the community. I know that uh, just last month as we record this, uh, well, a little over a month ago now, during WWDC week, there were lots and lots of events around San Francisco, and one of them was the Layers Conference. And she spoke there. She was on stage with John Gruber. And uh, I talked uh, to them on Twitter today. I was hoping that we could uh, be able to see that interview. And they said they're working on getting the videos online. So I'm sure we'll post a link on Twitter to that once it's out and available. But for now, let's continue through the evolution of icons on the classic Mac. So we, we were just talking about black and white icons on the first Mac, essentially System 1. And it wasn't really until System 7 that the icons themselves gained uh, color. Uh, so in System 6, there was the concept of labels, uh, which still exists today in, in OS X. And I think they would apply the label's color to the black and white folder, but there wasn't anything in the way of like uh, full-color icons on their own. Those came with System 7. They icons got the full ability of 256 colors, 8 bits. Which was basically as much as you were doing at all at the time, um, at least at the release of System 7.0. In later versions of System 7, it was pretty standard to have at least thousands, if not millions of colors um, for the overall color depth of the monitor. But 256 was basically the full palette uh, at the dawn of System 7. And I, so, you know, full disclosure, I never used System 6. I came in in System 7.1 in the early 90s, and I was just looking back uh, as we were preparing for this to figure out just sort of what the extent of color on the Mac was pre-System 7, and both in terms of hardware and software. And so, like I said, there was some criticism of the original Mac that it had basically no color capabilities. Because, of course, the Apple II had plenty of color capabilities. Um, not full 256 color icons or anything like that, but they were definitely color machines. So, in some respects, visually, the Mac seemed a step backwards there, although they gained in resolution what they lost in color. Um, and continued to do so through the 80s and into the 90s. Um, but yeah, in System 6, you were probably dealing with color in applications, but the Finder itself was pretty much all black and white. The only splashes of color were the Apple menu, which of course is now monochrome as I look up at the top left <laughs> corner of my screen here. So uh, what goes around comes around, I guess, on that. Um, but if you had a color Mac, and the first color Mac was in 1988, I believe, if I'm recalling properly. Uh, if you had a color Mac, then you had that little splash of color for the Apple logo and any of your labeled Finder folders. And then everything else that was going to be color was going to appear in other applications that you had. So System 7 was the full colorization of the Finder and the system as a whole, including also uh, going back to like when we were talking about kaleidoscope schemes, the window borders themselves got a slight infusion of color. They were no longer completely monochrome, even though they were a muted gray-blue color palette. 
So with System 7, we got uh, blue folders, like kind of pale blue folders. And the trash can was a, a shaded gray, not just, well, in, it wouldn't have been the pattern gray. Uh, and it was actually just flat white uh, before. And other things uh, gained color, like Ed said, the Apple menu was there. Uh, before we got the macOS logo we're familiar with, system files were denoted by tiny versions of uh, basically like the classic Mac 128K, the kind of SE, SE30 model. Um, and that was in color. It was like a little gray hardware with a blue screen. Uh, yeah, there was color all over the place. So with this huge color palette, it also began an explosion of third-party icon design, which we'll also discuss some of our favorites a little bit later. Um, and there was a lot going on, and there was the ability to get in and access these icons and either modify them or create your own using ResEdit. And those original System 1 icons that were designed in-house by Susan Kerr and others at Apple, there was no ResEdit. They weren't opening ResEdit to go and make those changes. But of course, they were editing them digitally, and they had their own proprietary icon editor that was based on the fat bits mode in Mac Paint, where if you zoomed in really close you would not only see the pixels enlarged, but you would get to see the borders between the pixels. And so that original Fat Bits editor um, didn't really need any drawing tools. You were presented with 32 by 32 squares, and the only action is on or off. So it might be a little bit painstaking if you wanted to color the whole thing black to click and drag across all of them, but that was really all that you needed. Whereas once you got into the 8-bit color icons, and also they had a 1-bit mask, so they did have some basic transparency that also uh, affected what areas of the icon you could click. Uh, once you had that, you needed a more robust editor, and ResEdit provided that editor. And you could get in and see the ICN number, the ICL 4 and 8 resources for the 4-bit and 8-bit color, um, and then the ICS 4 and 8, the small version, 16 by 16 pixels. And you had, you know, it was a pixel art editor, but it really was art editing software. Um, one of the other great things about this was that you could really get a sense by blowing them up in that Fat Bits style editor of how icons were created. There was a lot more freedom than the one-bit editor, but you could still just look at it, and once zoomed in, you could tell, ah, if you change one pixel over here or one pixel over there, if you do this with the colors, you get this certain shadow effect or something like that. And there's a great article about this by Chris Finn, who writes a column over at Macworld, that deals with some retro Mac stuff as well. And I uh, have a quote from him here that I think really sums up nicely this era of Mac icons. First of all, his title for the article, it says, the golden age of icons was 32 by 32, and I tend to agree with him. But he says, I have huge affection for these icons, not just because I admire their technical brilliance in condensing complex ideas onto a small canvas, 
and not just because their size references the original icons, tiny painted portraits of holy figures, much more directly than the gargantuan pictures that we use as icons today, but because I could make them. And that was absolutely true. I spent lots and lots of time in ResEdit tinkering around and building icons of my own, usually from scratch. You usually just go in there and uh, open up an ICL8 resource and hit new and go. Everything was possible there in that window. You know, you could you could be up there with the best of everyone else if you just took the time to go pixel by pixel in that window and learn the tricks about shading to uh, accomplish a shadow or blending of colors to kind of approximate something else. It's true. The only way that you could really fail was to go too fast. And uh, and Ed mentioned the one bit mask, which was another layer of you could of of tricks that you could apply. Uh, so not only was it you know possible to set the clickable um, area of the icon, and also back in the days when you used to actually open folders into their own window, and the uh, the icon itself would be kind of a filled in pattern to indicate that the folder was open rather than just opening a new uh, view in the same window like we do today in OS X. Um, you could have fun with the mask and maybe mask over a white space or empty space in your icon so that you know you may have an icon of a happy face. And when you click on it and the, the masked area darkens, you could have a little speech bubble that says hi that was only defined in the mask and uh, only revealed when you click on it and little tricks like this. And these were all the fun things that just like Chris said, we could all discover and accomplish ourselves and feel like we were up there with the professionals and up there with the greats, or at least I did. Yeah. Up there with people who were really doing art and design work uh, as part of, if not their entire living. We had system seven that introduced color uh, but it really colored the uh, the original icons or or very close versions of the original icons. But with OS 8, I always need to check myself, System 7, OS 8. Uh, yeah. 7.5.1 was the cutoff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were brought into the Copeland design language where icons became isometric and they were they had a perspective they were casting shadows from a light source that was i guess at the top left corner of your screen um and and the the color mood changed a little bit things got a little darker yeah the trick that i always learned from the the light source was they said that the light comes from the apple menu oh that makes so much sense It's this glowing beacon of hope in the <laughs> top left corner. But yes, it was a huge departure uh, in terms of visual style, but still trying to keep the uh, design language. So folders did not suddenly become directories or something else. They were still folders. And the goal was for them to look new and fresh and three-dimensional, but also be immediately recognizable as folders. Now, I remember one of the things that uh, threw me off with the Copeland-style folder icons was that after many, many years of getting used to what a folder looked like, suddenly the side that the tab was on had changed. And um, we talked about tinkering with icons. I actually still have a folder 
full of icons I made that is called Copeland Folder Variations, where I did a whole lot of dumb things like just like take a corner out or make it extra short or something like that. But one of them, I took the tab and put it back on the other side where I was convinced that it belonged and then went and copied and pasted that custom icon onto all of my folders that were just plain folders. That was the other thing about icons in System 7 was that you know, we mentioned going in and doing the pixel art in ResEdit, but if that wasn't your thing or if you were not really f- at the level where you even had a copy of ResEdit or felt comfortable going into ResEdit and messing around with those sorts of things, custom icons were still always available through the get info window in the finder, just as they are today, I believe. And the first icons that I ever made was shortly after I learned that, you know, there was that image well for the icon in the get info window. And all you had to do was take some artwork, any artwork, and paste it in there. And to the best of its ability, the finder would generate a 256 color 32 by 32 icon out of it. And so the first icons that I ever created were in Clarisworks Paint or Clarisworks <laughs> Draw Documents. Uh-huh. Um, I think actually in Clarisworks Draw Documents, where you would create some huge vector art and then just copy it and paste it down onto a folder and hope that it didn't come out horrendously ugly. Um, and I know some of those are still around in my files. Some of those are still around in my parents' files um, that were generated that way. So not pixel perfect. Um, and then I got into the res edit editing. Uh, I, I did something similar, um, which is maybe a good segue into our next uh, Mac OS version. Um, I remember using, it must've been the draw tools in Clarisworks to get shapes that had cool gradient fills because I was not about to spend my time uh, individually darkening each pixel in ResEdit. So if I wanted to have something with a cool gradient, I would draw it in uh, in Clarisworks and then copy and paste it onto the icon. And uh, this probably did happen around the time that OS 8.5 came out when the uh, color palette increased again. We went from 8-bit to 24-bit color, millions of colors. And the masks went from 1-bit to 8-bit. So instead of just being on or off, they too had a a gradient level, um, which allowed icon designers to achieve some translucency. You could have icons that were maybe at 50% opacity right around the time that the Bondi Blue iMac comes out with its translucent plastics and everyone rushed to make iMac-esque folders with translucent Bondi that let some of your desktop shine through or things like that. And it, oh, I remember this was just a whole new world <laughs> of, of icons. And uh, as Ed has here in our show notes, this was the end of simple pixel editing. ResEdit was never updated to have a million color palette inside. It remained limited to the same 256. And the one-bit masks. And the one-bit masks, exactly. It would have been easy for them to have the the eight bit masks in there, but because it was it, that could have easily piggybacked on the exact same drawing tools, but um, it just didn't get the update. So 
what did we have to do to edit these icons then? Well, we had to, again, resort to separate utilities that would be able to combine. Well, first of all, you would have to do your art elsewhere, or you would have to do your art in ResEdit, maybe in a CICN resource where you could have index color, or maybe you would just say, okay, I'll make uh, the icon in one icon uh, ICL8 resource and then the mask in another one, just using shades of gray, and then you would have to combine them with a utility. So the one that was mostly done used to do this was clip to Ickens, a close cousin of clip to Kicken. <laughs> um, again, where you would have to gather these more complex art resources on the clipboard and then have them directly inserted in sort of a non-editable form into the resource fork of whatever you were compiling your icons in. Right, because I think uh, we, we mentioned the different resources, ICL4, ICL8, etc. The resource for these very color-rich icons was ICNS, if I recall correctly. Right, and it contained the information for the entire family, I believe. Yeah, but if you opened up it in if you opened it up in ResEdit, it was just hex, and ResEdit had no idea what to do with it. The Finder would still generate the the lower versions, I believe, so you could still get in and see the the unmasked versions. So yeah, this sort of marked a turning point, at least for me, in terms of. You know, again, casual participation in the icon design community. But up until then, it really felt like you had everything that you needed to hand in a copy of ResEdit. Whereas here it started to go further into more high-powered graphic tools just to be able to make these beautiful little icons. Then in OS 9 was the final touches on the Copeland aesthetic, the Copeland uh, style. One of the things that came in OS 9 that I didn't realize was that only until OS 9, this was the first time that the icon for hard drives had been revamped. So from System 1, the icon for a hard drive was a rectangle with the corner pixels taken out and two other little pixels on it that, I, I don't know, there's some indicator light or something, or maybe a switch. Um, extremely abstract. You know, we're saying that these icons had to really represent what they were, and for the large part did, where, you know, folders were folders, and files had you know, the basic paper format and you could fill them in. And there was the stationary pad that was like that, but had a separate sheet behind it. Because if you opened stationary pad documents, they would create an untitled document. And even things like font suitcases. Why is it in a suitcase? I don't know, but it's clearly a suitcase and it's got the letter A on it. It's obvious what it does. Yeah, I've forgotten about those. But the hard drive icon was just so abstract and so, I mean... I guess at the very beginning, in System 1, hard drives were not the norm. So the floppy drive icon, which or the floppy disk icon, which was clearly a floppy disk. There's just no mistaking it. Um, 
that was very obvious, but the hard drive icon was so opaque. Even if you had a hard drive sitting next to your computer, why is this rectangle necessarily the hard drive? And then, of course, by the time that I came to the Mac, beginning of the Power Mac era, it's still this rectangle that didn't quite look like the computer unit itself. The hard drive is internal, so it was really kind of lost and out of place. So it got revamped in OS 9, and I'm not sure that it really helped. It, uh, it, got, it got beige, and the little, the little light on it became colorful, and it has some perspective now. So it's a, it's a, you know, a flat square box. We'll also link up an article in the show notes, uh, a cool article about more modern hard drive icons, including the way that Apple went with their hard drive icon imagery in OS X and what third-party designers have tried to do with that. And the fact of the matter is that unlike some of these other things that really have tangible reference points, most people don't ever put their hands on a hard drive. And so it's very hard to say, what is the, the one piece of imagery that I'm going to try to use to make it obvious that this is the place where all the files live. <laughs> of course, you know, now we have the home directory, which is a, a total carryover from Unix, where they were still called home directories. And what does that look like now in OS X? What a house. A house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sometimes you just have to rely on the name of something rather than what it's really for uh, when you get to a really abstract concept. Ed's mentioned OS X, so uh, let's jump to it because this is probably the biggest change as far as icons in the Mac operating system are concerned. Uh, no longer are icons confined to 32 by 32 pixels. No, they can go all the way up to, at least at the initial release of OS X, 128 by 128 pixels. And the design language changed again. They were no longer little bitmaps that even in the OS 8.5, OS 9 world, could be achieved with relative success, pixel by pixel, a little bitmap. No, the, the design language changed to be more photorealistic, uh, skeuomorphic, um, you know, and, and the perspective changed. They weren't the kind of 45-degree angle from the side of classic macOS. Now it's kind of like looking down on it as it kind of vanishes towards the, uh, the horizon. Um, and there are some there are some icons that I think like perfectly uh, encapsulate this era. Uh, and like I said, the the hard drive that Apple used that actually looked somewhat like uh, a hard drive enclosure on the inside of a machine. It's gray and it's got the the indentation for where the spinning platters are. Um, another one that I think of is the first preview icon that had that. What was it like a photo of a little girl in a magnifying glass? Yeah, the magnifying loop, which is still in the preview icon. They got rid of the creepy kid, though, in Yosemite. <laughs> and it was just a whole new world. Like, there is no way that these could be <laughs> accomplished clicking pixels on and off and choosing from a color palette. Well, and looking at app icons, like uh, the text edit icon, you know, there's been simple text or teach text from the dawn of the Mac. And 
on that icon, there are some lines, you know, just straight lines that are to represent words on a page. And now all of a sudden on our document and app icons, there are words, actual words. Like you can zoom in and read the words. And that presents an interesting design challenge in its own right. We're actually going to put legible words on here. What What should those words be? At least before Yosemite, it was the text of the famous Here's to the Crazy Ones speech from the Think Different campaign. Yep. Uh, right there on the text edit icon. And that's now gone um, as of Yosemite. Same with Notes. Notes had some text on there as well. We'll, uh, we'll put some links to those icons in the show notes. And then, of course... In the last couple of years, we now have Retina Max. So not only do you have these large icons at essentially at 1x in the, the development parlance, but now you're going to be blowing them up to, to 2x. And even before that, the size had crept up all the way to 512 pixels on a side. And now they are 512 at 2x. So as I sit here... On my internal non-retina screen, that doesn't even fit. Um, and on my external screen, I guess it's it's a 1080p display, so it would just fit underneath the menu bar. The entire icon you could view at one-to-one. Or in another way, the original icons were 1,024 pixels in total, and this is 1,024 pixels in one dimension. Yeah, it's a huge, huge difference. And it really necessitates, beyond clip to Ickens, my goodness, it necessitates an entire complete different approach to creation of icons. You can't approach it as a flat canvas that you're going to merely draw shapes and alter the pixels on. You have to approach it from, like, a Photoshop layers or Illustrator vector art mentality just to get something that even looks normal. One of the other things in the transition away from the pixel art icons is, you know, look back at some of the early aqua icons, which look completely foreign to us uh, now, even though they're not that old. Um, you know they've they've faded away a lot more quickly than some of those original system one icons did. Uh, I was looking at the timeline of OS ten release or not OS ten releases of Mac system software releases and also OS ten releases in particular, and was trying to figure out sort of how long these different paradigms lasted, and also looking at when did System 6 really come out? Because, as I recall, was, there was System 1, and then a bunch of things happened very quickly, and then there was <laughs> System 6. And that, that's System 5 introduced MultiFinder, so it was a big deal, but it was only out for, I think, about a year. And uh, I compared it, and the time from the release of the original Macintosh with System 1 to System 6 was shorter than the time for Tiger and Leopard combined. Just two releases of OS X. 
so these things have some staying power uh it, because you know then there was the system six era which was quite long and the system seven era which was quite long and the eight and nine era which was pretty decent and that was you know a, a major visual refresh and then the os 10 refreshes that we've had maybe sort of i don't know three major eras within os 10 sort of the the original aqua then tiger tiger and leopard uh era and now the yosemite el capitan era and those early icons the one direction that they went was photorealism like the photo on the preview icon. But the other direction that they went was more abstract, less real world. So if you look at the folders, they look like they're made out of like translucent plastic and with pinstripes, of course. Uh, And nobody has file folders sitting around that really look like that not made out of that material. And so what that icon says to me is, okay, it's the 21st century. You've been using computers. You know that folders have a particular meaning and function and look on a computer. So that's all you need to know here is that this is a computer folder as opposed to you're familiar with folders from your real-world desk this is how your computer works. A little bit of a different approach that can be taken in the visual design. And I think that's one of the reasons that they look dated is because they they have this, uh, they're, they're trying to look like their own thing at you know their own time rather than trying to approximate something that had existed for a long time. And was very simple in the real world. Exactly. Uh, and so they're very much artifacts of their time, these early Mac OS X icons, especially the pinstripes. Yeah, absolutely. You think of you know, you think of the little Mac icon 32 by 32, and you go, oh yeah, that's a computer. Even though you didn't really use computers that looked like that. I never used a computer that lo- looked like that ever. I knew theoretically that that was what early Macs looked like. Whereas if you look at some uh, 256 color icon that is really imitating the Bondi blue plastic of the original iMac. You're like, oh, that looks that looks like the 90s <laughs> because that was you know it's so much more tied to time. So we want to run through a few of the really classic iconic icons that have been part of the Mac experience. And sort of surrounding these major interface elements that we've already discussed, things that have been a little bit more, uh, I don't know, cheerful, artistic, um, and sort of have lives of their own beyond uh, just an interface element. And I think the first one of these that uh, deserves mention is the so-called Picasso Macintosh logo, which, like the other icons began as something large and sort of real world, even though it was a piece of art. Uh, You've probably seen this before. The brush stroke outline art of the original Mac, the compact 128K Mac form factor. 
with the mouse trailing off and the keyboard in front of it, uh, all in these very simple stylized brush strokes. And this was used in marketing materials by Apple for a long, long time and found its way into the system software as well in icon form. And it appeared for a long time, I believe all the way through system 7.1 at least, on the Welcome to Macintosh screen that appeared as soon as you turned on your computer, would pop up a dialog box, and dialog boxes too had a place for a single icon. And the one there was the picture of representing the computer that you were using, and the text says, Welcome to Macintosh. So there's a long, long story of this logo and its uses at various sizes, pixels, and print, and everything else. Um, and an interesting wrinkle in the story that only came to light a year or so ago. We'll link up both of these stories that give really good history about this. Uh, this is known as the Picasso Macintosh logo. And I've seen uh, some of this art. Picasso is known for many different styles, but one of his styles is very simple line drawings. Um, like he would draw animals where he would just put a pencil down on the page and draw a single line and not lift it. Um, and this was supposed to be in that style, but, uh, they tracked down the artist who actually created this in the early days of Apple and says that he was more inspired by Matisse. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> doesn't matter where the inspiration came from, but, uh, that's a important piece of iconography in the Macintosh canon. Another important icon that would show up around the same time in your use of the Mac is the Happy Mac. And this uh, the icon itself is another representation of the original Mac, the self-contained 128K model. And it's got a very simple smiley face coming off of the screen. And this would be the first icon you'd see when you turn on your computer, assuming that all was well with the, the boot ROM process. Uh, it, and, the, and the RAM check. And the RAM check, right. Uh, it had its counterpart, the sad Mac, which had little crossed out eyes and a big frown. Which would go with the chimes of death, which we covered in our first episode. <laughs> our pilot episode, yeah. Uh, hopefully you only ever saw the happy Mac. And I think uh, in in addition to being the, the icon that greeted you when you first turned on your computer, the icon that represented your computer was functioning fine. It was kind of an, an icon that represented at least to me, the Mac as a whole, like it was a friendlier computer. It was what it, it was that Steve Jobs said, the computer for the rest of us. Uh, it was, it, it was a, a friendly, warm thing, not just a, a cold tool to be used on spreadsheets. Well, it also speaks to the desire to represent everything possible with icons like the control panel what is happening at that point where the Happy Mac displays? It's a RAM check and boot ROM check. And I remember on the DOS box that we had before our first Mac, it I think it had 64k of RAM. And it, you know, one of the first things that it would show up at boot time was it would have two numbers and a slash between them, and it was you know, bytes of RAM, and it would Increment the number. No progress bar, no nothing, um, all the way up until the numbers matched. The RAM had checked out, and then it would go through a whole bunch more of text saying that, yes, everything's okay. Of course, you can use your computer. 
Whereas on the Mac, do you really need to watch the numbers count up? No, you just need to see that everything is happy. <laughs> so the Happy Mac was from the System 1 suite of icons from Susan Kerr, and another one that made it into uh, the early icons, although this one actually began as a font glyph in the Cairo font, is a famous character in icon lore, Claris, the dog cow. She says moof. So what what is Claris supposed to be? No one's really sure. It was it, it it's an animal. It was present in one of the first dingbat fonts. It it served no interface purpose originally, but then it found its uses most notably in the page setup dialog box. Yeah, it was a very simple way that uh if you say you wanted to print out this icon of Claris the dog cow. Uh, well, if you went into page setup, there she was in the center of a preview of how the page would turn. And if you wanted to switch to uh, landscape orientation, the page would rotate and she'd, she'd be there in the middle showing you how everything would come out. Or if you wanted to flip stuff horizontally or vertically for whatever reason when it came out of your printer, she would flip horizontally or vertically accordingly to make sure you knew what was going to happen when you pressed print. And if you had a color printer, you could have Technicolor dog cows <laughs> filled in with uh, all the colors of the rainbow. All of them this time, not just the ones that are in the new iTunes icon. And <laughs> <laughs> not just an oil spill. <laughs> no. Another whimsical icon that was created in that original Fat Bits editor by Susan Kerr is an icon of the a portrait of the youthful Steve Jobs. Yeah. Uh, and let us remind you, this is a 32 by 32 one bit icon, only black and white pixels here. And we'll link to a page about this particular icon in the show notes, but there's a quote in the middle, a little line that says, uh, (laughs) it's an instantly recognizable likeness with a mischievous grin that captures a lot of Steve's personality. Everyone Susan Kerr showed it to liked it, even Steve himself. Well, it wouldn't have seen the light of day if Steve didn't like it. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, but, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. It, it, both in the like blown-up fat bits view and in the uh, real size, actual size, it does look like photos of Steve from that era. It looks more like Steve Jobs than the guy they got to play him in that new movie. <laughs> uh, Fastbender? Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think this is this is maybe the biggest testament to Susan Kerr's ability as a graphic designer both in general and within these constraints like she really knew how to convey what she was going for and then of course everybody else within apple was begging her for custom portraiture in the icon editor and a few people managed to get it there's one other face that is very prominent in the later history of uh well the mac os not uh macintosh system software with the introduction of the mac os name in system 7.5.1, we also got the finder face icon in cubist style. And I was all prepared to say that this was a, a sign that really from the beginning, Apple had valued the work of Picasso because there was the Picasso logo. And now this is very clearly blue period Picasso cubism. Um, 
but maybe they were just as misled as the rest of us in thinking that that original icon, <laughs> original icon and original artwork was Picasso inspired. But there's no doubt that the current Finder logo and its predecessor, the macOS logo, were inspired by that Cubist style of two faces within one. And we had the same artwork for this for many, many years. What? 20 years uh, of the macOS logo. That's pretty strong branding uh, until the release of Yosemite and again, another major visual overhaul. And I think one of the most jarring changes for some people was that the first icon on their dock was going to change and it's the Finder icon. It has become a little more square, a little more vibrant colors fitting in with the Yosemite aesthetic. And it's a lot more smiley. At first, I hated it. Uh, I thought it was way out of character, maybe uh, too juvenile, uh, maybe because it's more smiley. But I went back to a computer running, I guess, Mountain Lion or Mavericks. And the old one now looks jarring to me. It looks grumpy. It looks outdated. Yeah, grumpy. Uh, the colors are more muted. They're not as vibrant. Yeah, so it's testament again to Apple or just the me accepting things after repetition. Other icons that were notable from the very beginning, I think one of the best ones is the bomb for errors. Uh, what's what's gone wrong with your computer? Something blowed up. <laughs> yeah. Is basically what's being said there. Again, sort of taking that extra layer of abstraction, protection from the gritty details, which some people still criticize Apple for today, um, but it was useful at that point. There was, sorry, a system error occurred. That's it. There's a bomb. You know that something went wrong. You have no recourse. We are sorry. Restart. And bomb, you know, how do you represent even just the word bomb? Well, it looks like a Looney Tunes cartoon bomb. It's a round sphere with a little metal piece sticking out of it and a lit fuse, and it's a bomb. Yep, it's what Wile E. Coyote is lobbing at the Roadrunner. Exactly. And of course, for the people who were interested in the nitty-gritty details, they could install Maxbug on their classic machines, and it had a variant of the bomb as logo. The last classic or iconic icon we want to talk about is what represents an application. Um, ever since 2008 and the iOS app store and the, there's an app for that campaign. The app is a, is a pretty pervasive word in at least our lexicon probably. And by our, I mean me and Ed, the people listening to the show, we talk about apps all day short for application. And initially in system one, uh, an application was represented by a hand holding a writing or illustrating implement, usually a pen or a paintbrush, over a blank sheet of paper. A 45-degree rotated square. But it was obvious that it was a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And maybe later on, when, when icons had higher fidelity, you could convey lines of text being written or a brush stroke being painted or even a full photo being manipulated by this floating hand with a, with a tool. Which, if I think of it, is very sort of M.C. Escher. 
speaking of artistic uh, influences. Oh, totally, totally. Um, and this metaphor continued through the classic, uh, Mac, like all the way through OS nine, and then with OS ten applications. And I want to say AppleWorks six. <laughs> I still have a copy of AppleWorks six. It doesn't run. The general idea of an application, uh, like the hand went away and the tools came to the forefront. So uh, if you look on the glyph for the App Store now, it's a, what is it? It's a paintbrush, a pencil, and a ruler uh, arranged to form a letter A, ostensibly for application. Um, and I want to say that Apple Works was uh, also like a collection of these tools. I've got it right here. <laughs> With a big, with a big, uh, do not enter <laughs> yeah. logo over it because it's a you know classic application, or I guess a non Intel, yeah, PowerPC application. Um, it's got a piece of paper with a big letter A on it. It's got a bar chart. It's got some words. It has an old um, slide projector slide. There's a pencil. And there's a piece of graph paper sort of tucked in the background. But the abstraction there is the hand is gone, right? Yeah. That's all that sort of left. The pencil is not, it's not pencil to paper. The pencil is not writing on the paper, but it seems like just the hand has left temporarily from this icon. And the, the important thing, the, the more abstract metaphor that we're left with now is just that rotated rectangle. Where we had before, it was there was that rotated rectangle, and the hand would reach in and, and manipulate it. Now we just say, rotated rectangle, that could be an app. And that was the sort of standard way of representing an app for a long time through OS X. And then we got some clarification of that in Yosemite, where there are now three major ways to represent an app. So you can stick with the rotation or you can go full on square or you can go full on circle. And some of them, like if you want to go even deeper, isn't it like square is for more utilities, uh, rotated is for applications, like full, full blown applications. The, the thing that still persists is those ones where you have the, the rotated rectangle those are supposed to be for apps that create documents. That's yeah, that's what it is. So that's still there. So even though it's so abstract, we just it's just a rotated rectangle. It's just off off axis a little bit. What that really represents is a piece of paper that a hand is coming in and reaching in and manipulating. And the reason that that works, I mean obviously because we can see the progression that helps. But the thing that is kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but maybe it's really genius about that original one-bit app icon, is what is that original app icon showing? You're manipulating a rectangle. That like That's all, all that there was room to show. There is a hand, it is manipulating a rectangle. And, you know, until the holographic future, still... What we do with apps on all of our devices from, you know, Retina iMac to watch is manipulate rectangles. And so it still works. 
the genius of Susan Kerr once again. I mean, I'm not saying she saw the future, but she made something that was general purpose and with a little bit of guidance here and there as things progressed retains its purpose. So now we want to go back through the back to the classic era and talk about a little sliver because it was huge. The icon community, like Ed said, um, even if you didn't want to create your own custom icons, there were so many people out there, hobbyists and professionals who were doing it. Yeah. Your easiest excuse was, well, I don't have the time to make my own, but I don't need to. I can just download so many freeware icons. Yeah. And so uh, I think we need to start with the Icon Factory because they're the, they're the, the heavy hitter in the Macintosh Icon community. Uh, they were founded in June 1996. Uh, there were three original founders, Ged Mayhew, uh, Talos Tsui, and Corey Marion, and I apologize if I butchered any of those names. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure we'll put a link to their um, company history in our show notes, but uh, I think they started as an AOL members page. They absolutely did, as many fine websites did. <laughs> yeah. Putting up some of the icons they had created in their spare time uh, and just grew from there. Uh, they hired a whole bunch of people, some of whom went on to become uh, famous in their own right for icons and other illustrations. They've even grown more recently into a software shop. They make uh, very popular apps like the Twitter client, Twitterific, uh, a couple games, some of the early iOS games like uh, Ramp Champ and Astronut. Frenzic was their first iOS game. And uh, uh, one thing that I remember from like the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, that the Icon Factory was great about was this springtime contest they called Pixel Palooza, where they would invite all the members of the Macintosh Icon community to submit uh, their icons they had created into a, a small subset of categories. And the members of the Icon Factory themselves would pick winners. There would be People's Choice Awards. Uh, and it was like, it was a celebration. I think all the entries were posted for download or maybe just the the winners, the first through third place finishers. Uh, it was it was just a celebration. The Icon Factor was always linking out to other people's icon releases. Uh, it was really just a wonderful place for people who were interested in seeing how professionals, you know, uh, did their work or just looking to get some cool icons for a change of scenery on their own machine. Yeah, and their original slogan tagline was Macintosh icons that don't suck. And they certainly lived up to that. And they, their site went through several iterations. And they actually have a great page on their current website because, like you said, Brian, they're still they're more of a software shop now, software and contract design, from what I can gather. But they are still in existence. And they have a great little history page on their website that shows the major iterations of their website. From first through all the way through, I think the sixth major version, which is the current one that they have. But the thing that gets me is I was also looking at this in Wayback Machines. Like the fourth revision is just, it is the perfect example of a pixel by pixel crafted website where, you know, 
with an icon, they were limited to 32 by 32, but with a website, they were basically given the entire screen as a pixel canvas. And they used it to its full, and they would have... um they would have animations up in the top right that would change seasonally, and they, were, they would represent the factory in some way. Uh, and crazy things would happen to the factory, like they would get abducted by aliens, or there would be they would be on an ice flow, and a snowman would save them, um, or the factory was turned into a slot machine, like all kinds of really whimsical stuff, but done with lots and lots of care. And that really exemplified the whole enterprise of creating icons at that time. Like we said, they're now more focused on software. I mentioned the iOS games that they've done in the past, which have been pretty successful. I think the one thing that everybody knows that they are still very strongly, actively working on uh, is the Twitterific Twitter client for both Mac and iOS, which is really, really nice. Yeah, and as a former employee of Twitter, I think uh, the Twitter and the Twitter ecosystem itself owes a lot to Twitterific, the software. Oh, right, they invented the bird. They invent, yeah, the, anthropomorph- <laughs> the anthropomorphized blue bird, not just like a Twitter logo, but a, a blue bird with a, you know eyes and a smiling beak. That was, a, that was the Twitterific bird. Um, because before that, Twitter just had the text logo. Yeah, exactly. The, the weird blue bubbly font. Um, also, I think this this may be completely wrong, but I think the guys at the Icon Factory are responsible with calling a single Twitter update a tweet. They were the first to do that. Uh, so, like, there are just so many things that you know, Twitter is built on the backs of its users and developers. Uh, so it's it's easy to forget that a lot of these things came from. People like the Icon Factory. Uh, there are two designers, um, again, out of an incredibly large number in this community that I wanted to also uh, recognize in the show. And um, I'll get to why in a second. Their names are Brian Brasher and John Marstall. Uh, I think in this time, they went by the handles slash website titles of Ether Brian and Perfect Yosemite, respectively. Um, although I came to know Brian's work through, I guess, a spinoff site called Ethernot, uh, we'll make sure links to Wayback Machine versions of these sites are in our show notes. Ethernot was kind of his pixel art uh, outpost for icons, where, as far as I can tell, he would do all of his original artwork in the 16 by 16 canvas in ResEdit, and then uh, pixel double them, blow them up uh, for the releases. And um, his his main work, Ether Brian, it was uh, he had, he was very whimsical. Uh, you know, a lot of his I think his avatar right now is a skeleton in a fez, perhaps. And there was a lot of cool out there work like that, like very illustrative, very creative. And then Ethernot was kind of that distilled into an even smaller canvas, um, and uh, it was just very cool. I I was a fan immediately. Uh, John Marstall in Perfect Yosemite was I think the first guy uh, to really take advantage of the OS 8.5 expanded fidelity. Like he was probably the first guy that was going into Photoshop or Illustrator and doing beautiful artwork, maybe even at vector sizes so that they would resize well. 
as opposed to Ethernaut, I'm looking at this Wayback Cache from uh, February of 1999, and there's like there's a FAQ at the bottom, and it says, "Do your icons take full advantage of macOS 8.5?" And it says, "No, this is nostalgia here, baby." <laughs> <laughs> double nostalgia now yeah and so uh it these these two guys really represented i think the ends of the spectrum you have full like pixely goodness over with brian's site and like beautiful illustrations uh on the other end of the spectrum at john's site and uh they were both kind of active at the same time and then about a decade later in the late 2000s they i don't know how they met or came to be working together, but they both ended up at the same company called Alamo Fire, which was responsible for two different uh, services that both relied heavily on icons. Uh, the first was Packrat, which was, in my opinion, the only Facebook game ever worth playing. Um, and, it, and a lot of that was due to the quality of the artwork. And it, and it was, I assume, these two guys... Uh, putting out the icons. Uh, Packrat was essentially a scavenger hunt mixed with a trading card game where you would collect these icons that represented a whole variety of things and uh, kind of have them in a collection on your profile. You could try and steal some of your friends' icons, but if you, you might drop some icons on theirs. And it was a kind of Pokemon-esque gotta-catch-em-all situation. And when you say a variety of things... We mean a variety of things, like above and beyond emoji. Like we've got everything from Tron light cycles to Zeldman, literally a picture of Zeldman, <laughs> to Legos, to um, the state of Mississippi. No, wait, that's Alabama. <laughs> um, yeah, like, a decapitated Easter bunny. Like it's, it's, it's quirky, but it's really interesting art. And then the next thing that this company, Alamo Fire, made uh, was Gowalla, which hopefully people will remember as a, a... I remember it as the Foursquare competitor. Yep, yeah. I was trying to find a nice way to pitch it so it wasn't just an Alsoran. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was basically this, the same idea as Foursquare, checking into locations. Uh, but I would argue it was way more beautiful. And again, uh, they had these two guys who were great at icons, creating icons for uh, generic things like a diner or a movie theater, but also very specific things. Like um, I think this team was based in Austin. So they're like the draft house cinema or uh, Austin other Austin landmarks would get their own icon that would. And that was part of the claim to fame for Gowallos that they had artwork for a specific places like, you know, the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't just monument. Yeah. And so I think, like, unfortunately, I think neither of these products exist today. Uh, Goala certainly doesn't. It was acquired by Facebook. Um, Packrat seems to maybe still exist, but definitely not in its original form. But I think that for as long as the both of them were successful, a large part of it was due to the the visual quality, the talent that went into the icons and the icons were a big part of the experience. And it was so cool to see these two artists who I had followed from the early days of the community come together to work on these icon heavy projects. Well, I think what I've seen with all of these people over and over and over again, uh, including Susan Kerr, is that these people who loved icon design had some sort of 
artistic urge. And they often had other artistic skills. Go to their pages now and they have things that really are fine art, painting or perhaps digital art that's very complex. One of the other ones that springs to mind for me, one of my first introductions to classic Mac icons was the Blue Sky Icons collections by Lane Carcroft, which you mentioned Icon Factory starting on an AOL hosted page. I first downloaded those icons through just like the proprietary AOL file sharing areas, like not even from the web. Um, and just thought that they were incredible what they could do with that limited palette and that limited space. But again, I was able to go in and reverse engineer that. And I, I'll post this in the show notes as well. I have, um, it's like a futuristic, glowy, blue sky inspired version of a control panel icon that I remember sending to Lane Carcroft and getting feedback. And he was like, this is, I would tweak these pixels this way, but you did a really good job of figuring out how these work. Like that reverse engineering and community aspect was there. And of course, Lane uh, went on to do much more graphic design and then got into kaleidoscope schemes and uh, desktop backgrounds. These desktop backgrounds that were designed to hold your icons in some ways, and they were called desktop consoles. Oh, that's right. I remember them. So there would be areas along the borders of the screen where you could place your icons and really show them off. Um, all of that is just overflowing artistic ability and inspiration in many of these people. Also a great community site that I enjoyed uh, that lasted a little bit later into the OS 10 days was a site called Pixel Girl Presents. And unlike these other ones, this was not someone primarily showing off their own work. It was more of a like collective um, or open catalog that people could submit their icons, desktop backgrounds, later iOS wallpaper backgrounds. And the site was run right here in Ann Arbor, actually. It was one of the reasons that I knew about it. It was an individual project, but really gained a lot of good press. It was featured in Time Magazine um, when that still mattered. <laughs> <laughs> um, and was a really great example of a community site. It's still active. like The site is still active. So you can go and look at the archives there. It had sort of a like bubblegum punk aesthetic in some ways, uh, which was just, you know, it was a little bit of a different take on these things. And you can go check it out. The, as far as I can tell, there are sporadic, if any, updates at this point, but the last updates look like they were a couple years ago. The last thing we want to mention in this section about community is perhaps <laughs> the most perfect way to present an icon community. It was a site called Icon Town which was literally a gigantic image map um, laid out like a town, an isometric town, like OS8 Copeland style, uh, where you could create some kind of building to represent your icon site. Naturally, the icon factory fit in very well. They had a factory. And drop it in on this virtual map of a town. 
Oh, and I see the Pixel House too, which I wanted to mention um, was a was a great site, which is no longer up. But we'll link to Dave Brascala, who is the creator of Pixel House, which is now Pixel Husen. Yeah, he's moved to Sweden, I think. Yeah, I remember. And Icon Town, uh, I think I got to it from the Icon Factory, uh, and they were there pretty early on. So you got to see when people would uh, would add something new and there'd be a little update. It's like collaborative eWorld. Oh, that's a perfect way to describe it. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Yeah, that that is a perfect showcase of how people who took this up either as a hobby or a business really saw it as a community of people who were all in the same endeavor. And even though neither Ed nor I have a a plot in the Icon Town, it doesn't mean that we ourselves didn't try to make icons, uh, maybe even sometimes put them up for distribution. We were a part of this community, too. Yeah, we were mostly uh, doing things for on our own computers for us, our friends, our family. Uh, I started creating some icon sets. I don't really recall to what extent I distributed these, but uh, I know that I think we're safe to say we were both big fans of the comic strip Foxtrot. Absolutely. In the late 90s. Um, and I created some icons based on that. I think mostly by pulling images from the Foxtrot website. So Bill Amond, who is the creator of Foxtrot, is a longtime Mac user uh, and had a fairly advanced website pretty early on, and you could grab images from there and then uh, take out sections that were would make good icons with you know, the faces of different characters and things like that. And I know that I had a icon of Quincy, the pet iguana from Foxtrot, as the icon for my primary documents folder, basically as long as I use Classic Mac. And I still have a copy of that folder. It's called Quincy, and it still has the icon. One of the other things I did with that set, though, was something that was kind of de rigueur at the time, <laughs> which was to make an image in a finder window. There was... At that point, no way to specify an image backdrop. You just have the white backdrop of a Finder window. But you could make lots and lots of folders and give them all custom icons that would exactly tile so that you could line them all up and make a large image. And this was pretty popular for like if you were distributing a piece of software, then you would make the logo of the software large in the window where the actual application was as well. And we see that in, you know, installer DMGs to this day, but it's with that background feature. So it's a little bit different. But the trick was you had to name all of the folders. The first one would have to be space. And the second one would be space, space. And the third one would be space, space, space. And occasionally things would go wonky and you would be able to see the blank titles for all of these folders and so you'd have to drag across them to select them in the appropriate order to uh, get the ones towards the bottom masking over the ones on the top and then it would create your beautiful seamless image uh, thought of this again recently again from Chris Finn he posted a tweet where 
people were doing this. It, it was some sort of spammer, but they were doing the same sort of thing basically on, it was either Twitter or Instagram where it shows like thumbnails of recent photos and they got it to perfectly tile to make some giant marketing message, which they then spammed him with. And he thought immediately of the better days of 32 by 32 icons on blank folders. I I made a few icon sets uh, in my spare time and I had them on some atrocious non AOL free host that was like covered. It was like tripod or angel fire or one of those. It's definitely been lost to time. Uh, but the one thing I remember doing, like having such high hopes for and <laughs> that were never fully realized uh, was running a counterpoint to the Icon Factory's Pixel Palooza contest, which uh, we said earlier, it, they invited members of the community to create icon sets and um, submit them for prizes. And you could do like system replacements where you would come up with your own folder icons and things for like extensions and control panels or just purely illustrative purposes. And then eventually illustrative might've been broken up into uh, two-dimensional versus three-dimensional. And then when 8.5 came out, was it, you know, full millions of colors versus 256? Anyway, uh, I wanted to, to have a contest that I would myself would have a chance at winning. So I decided to run a contest where you could only make one icon and it was only 256 uh, colors, I think. Um, hence, 1,024 pixels, the 32 by 32 grid. And I tried running it from my like very terrible, cheap website and uh, spamming the guys at the Icon Factory, like, please link to my contest. And they must have done it one or two years because I wasn't offering prize money or anything, just the glory of being listed as a winner on some middle schoolers website. Uh, but Ed was able to find, I guess, what was it, year 2000? Yeah, the 2000. I have the complete set. <laughs> We'll post that uh, with show notes. And there are some weird ones in here. Um, the, part of the contest was also that you, you, know, you submitted it on a folder and you got to name it. Oh, yeah. And the restriction there, of course, was 31 characters pre-OS 10. So you had your 1,024 pixels and 31 characters. And there's some weird ones in here. There's Psycho Sun. There's one that says, nice to meet you, an alien. And the grand prize winner, the plastic bog parentheses open, which is an icon of a porta potty. Boy, they really knew who they were playing to. That one. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like just to think, like we made this point before, but this this was a contest where at most you had to fill a thousand and twenty four pixels, uh, probably just in two hundred fifty six colors. No matter how much you you sweat the details, you were fairly limited. And now people, if, if we wanted to run this contest today, but take full advantage of uh, retina icons in Yosemite. Submit us your best line of pixels. <laughs> yeah, it would have to be one line of pixels. Um, and it's just crazy how far everything has come. So do we want to pay tribute to a lost piece of icon history? Yeah, I can, I can think of no better way to, to wind down this episode. So on the Apple campus for many years, I guess about 12 years, they had what was known as the Icon Garden. So they realized that some of the art that had been done to create the original Mac icons, especially the Mac paint icons, Claris the dog cow, was so great that they needed to show it off 
in the physical world. Take the physical to the icons and then back to the physical. And so they created giant statues of their icons and placed them around the lawn of the Apple campus. And there's some clever tricks here too. Uh, the, the paint bucket icon slash cursor is there and it's uh, painted with green pixels and it's touching the grass. So it's kind of like it's coloring the grass green. And there's a pencil icon, which is colored magenta. And where the tip of the pencil is touching, there's a line of magenta flowers. Uh, similarly, there's the eraser icon, which uh, is cutting through an area of the garden where the flowers are, are have been erased. And so it's, it looks like grass. Like the whole, the whole production of this garden is just uh, beautiful. I love it. <laughs> And presiding over all of it, Claris, the majestic beast. And the Icon Garden persisted until 1997. And why 1997? Because that was around the time that Steve Jobs came back to Apple. And the way that the story goes, as many of these stories go based on... Oh, this one isn't actually a folklore.org account but this is an this is an account from a apple employee at the time who said that one day they came to work and they were just gone and he said that he sort of cornered steve jobs at an event after that and asked did you have them get rid of the icon garden and this is his exact response it says steve admitted he'd had it done he found them too pixelated oh <laughs> And that they were at that point sitting in a warehouse over in Santa Clara. Why, he asked me, do you want to buy them? <laughs> <laughs> and man, think how many people, particularly our listeners, but also people beyond, would give the chance to buy one of those and put it in their own lawn. Yeah, I certainly would. In uh, one final bit of like tying it all together and maybe going too far into the levels of inception... The Icon Factory created an icon set of the Apple Icon Garden, <laughs> which we'll link to. But you're, to just recap, the, those are icons of physical objects of icons. Of physical objects. Yeah, of physical objects, yeah. I think that my head will explode at that point, so maybe this is where we should wrap up the episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like we said before, we're going to have lots of good stuff in the show notes. You know, we, we try not to rely on too heavily visual stuff in the show because talking about artwork is hard and not really great for you. If But if you are not driving along and you have access to the show notes as you listen, it makes it a much richer experience. And we love putting the visual stuff in there so that you can check it out whenever is convenient to you. So you can find show notes for this and all of our episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also contact us on our website if you are so inclined. We love to get great feedback from you. You can also find the show on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. That's all for this episode. Next time, we are again going to have a guest join us on the show. We are going to have Aaron McKean, who is the founder of wordnick.com and a longtime Mac user 
and dressmaker and lexicographer and very interesting person. We're looking forward to that very much. And we'll see you then.